0: Hi, this is Annika. Welcome to the Not My Problem
1: Podcast. Let's have some long overdue uncomfortable conversations.
0: Welcome back. Welcome, yeah, welcome back. back to today's Pranked. episode. Before we get <laughs> Let's started, again. It, I just try again. Hello! Want to oh, recap what like happened in it. the last oh. episode, <laughs> just in case you missed it and would we'll want to check it out. Today's episode. So, last we episode, just want we to talk about what happened, uh, concept uh, the, the environmental justice movement, um, which is environmental right. racism. Um, it was quite interesting. I feel like we learned quite a lot about mm. how the environment, of course, is suffering, but the people who are suffering the most of these consequences. Um, are often minorities and people in disadvantaged um, areas um, so yeah gave I think plenty of examples and also kind of um, I feel like we gave some positive uh, examples as well, as well of like what are some NGOs doing to um, make this a bit of a <laughs> less of a disaster yes. so definitely do <laughs> try and, and check out this, uh, this episode if you've missed it
1: yeah I think we learned a lot but for today's topic, we are going to cover classism and the super rich. And we want to put up a bit of a disclaimer here because classism is a very complex issue and neither of us are actually experts on it. And obviously, as usual, we did our research in an attempt to bring some awareness to an important issue, but we definitely don't know it all. So. Take all of this with a grain of salt and check out our resources for further reading to get a holistic point of view.
0: Yeah, definitely. I feel like after um, researching for this episode, both Anka and I realized that, okay, there is way more to it than we imagined. Even Mm. more to it. So, like, yeah, it's good to just be upfront about it. Yeah,
1: and also we are obviously no experts in taxation. In finance, who knows? Oh, you're not? <laughs> oh, uh, sorry. I, me- I forgot all my multiple certificates and degrees. No, honestly, we're not. So, yeah, just yeah. bear that
0: in mind. Yeah. So, um, let's kick this off as with our tradition of giving a definition. Um, and we'll start with the super rich. Um, mm-hmm. So, what is uh, or who are uh, the super rich? So, basically... They're the extremely wealthy people of this of this world. Uh-huh. Um, so actually, I don't know, you might be surprised by this or not, but being a millionaire isn't enough to be qualified um, as a super rich uh, anymore. So while 50 million is the starting point for serious wealth, in reality, our spending power um, and investing power really gets to the next level when you get around 100 million um, Says expert expert Catherine Tillotson.
1: Yes, and obviously we want to give you some facts and figures here. So worldwide there are about 2,744 billionaires and the top four countries with the most billionaires are the US at 724, China at 698, India at 140 and Germany at 136. And obviously this wouldn't be a Not My Problem podcast if you wouldn't point out what some of the distributions are here. And out of these billionaires there are only three hundred and twenty-eight women.
0: Yeah, so there are two thousand seven hundred forty five billionaires in total. And out of those only like about three hundred women.
1: Yeah, <laughs> which is which is you know sad, but uh, the truth. But um, we also want to put this into perspective uh, by telling you a little bit of what the average earnings for a normal human being looks like. And we're going to do this in euros because that's how we found the figures. Yeah,
0: strangely enough, the World Inequality Report um, has reported these, these figures in euros. Yeah. Um, so we confused by this, but yeah. it's a thing. <laughs> but yeah, I guess it's easy now to do the maths and oh. um, convert that into whichever um, currency you're most, most familiar with. But... To give you an idea, an average adult individual earned um, 16,700 per year euros per year in 2021 and the average adult owns uh, about 72,900 euros. Uh, and an, on average, an individual from the top 10% of the global income distribution earns um, 87,200 um, 87, euros per year. An individual from the poorest half of the global income distribution makes just about 2,800. Um, and then the poorest half of the global population barely owns any wealth at all, possessing just about 2% of the total. And so that's like just to say that again: the poorest half of the global population uh, possesses just under um, just about 2% of the total um, world wealth. Uh, wealth. So, um, and lastly, the richest 10% of the global pop- population owns 76% of all wealth. So I don't know if you are grasping how crazy these numbers are, but yeah, basically a half gets 2% and 10, the top 10% gets 75
1: Yeah, it's just nuts to imagine, I think. Did we talk about this? I think we did. There was like a TikTok video putting wealth into perspective of rice grains. Right? Yeah. So if you can find this TikTok video, which we normally don't recommend TikToks, but it's good for a visualization of what this actually looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, obviously, Seth's given you um, a definition of what the super rich are, but we haven't actually given you a definition of classism. And classism, another word for it, is really class dim- discrimination. And it's a prejudice or discrimination on the basis of social class. And it includes individual attitudes, behaviors, systems of policies and practices that are really set up to benefit the upper class at the expense of the lower class. And social class, in this instance, refers to the grouping of individuals in a hierarchy based on wealth, income, education, occupation and social network.
0: Great. Thank you for that very clear definition. Mm -hmm. Yes, and often um, classism intersects with other systems of oppression. And we'd like to say a little bit more about that, actually. The term classism can refer to personal prejudice against lower classes, as well as to institutional classism, um, exactly in the same way as the term racism can refer to either strictly um, personal prejudice, or institutional racism as well, if you remember from our first um, season. Um, And the latter has been defined as uh, the ways in which conscious and unconscious classism is manifested uh, in the various institutions of society. Um, Classism is held in places by a system of beliefs and cultural attitudes that ranks people according to economic status, family lineage, uh, job status, uh, level of education and other divisions. Um, And with... um, As with other uh, social classes, the difference in social status between people determines how they behave towards each other and the prejudices they likely hold towards uh, each other. Um, People of higher status do not generally mix well with lower status people. Um, and often are able to control other people's um, activities by influencing laws and social standards in a way that people from lower status um, cannot. Um, when it comes to media representation, the media actually plays a very important role in how certain groups of people are perceived. Um, as we all know, like we consume so much media all the time, so that influences our behavior uh, and our perception as well. Um, and that can make certain biases stronger. Um, Usually, the lower income people are displayed in the media as dirty, as having uh, suffering from a lack of education and manners, and often uh, through the lens of homelessness. Um, They're very rarely um, portrayed as simply human beings, right? They're very um, often dehumanized through those stereotypes. Um, Internalization is also uh, a big problem. Uh, because people who are poor um, or from working class um, sometimes th- quickly can, are quick to internalize the dominant society's beliefs and attitudes uh, towards them. And um, it played them out against themselves and others of their class. Um, so internalized classism is the acceptance and justification of classism by the working class and poor people in general. Um, so, for example, this can include feelings of inferiority to higher class people or even a disdain uh, or shame about traditional patterns of class in one's family um, or uh, a denial of heritage. Um, so, feelings of superiority to people, um, to people uh, lower on the class spectrum than, than oneself. Um, and also maybe hostility and blame towards other working-class people or poor people, even if you yourself are also from uh, one of those groups. Um, And also beliefs that classicist institutions are fair, which they often are not. So that's kind of a result of internalization, is that um, even though you are suffering from classism, Um, you tend to, or you can believe that the institutions are actually fair and you need, you are the reason uh, for your um, current status and you're the one who should be working harder and it's not the institutions, um, like the way the the system is designed, which often isn't the case. Um, There's also something to say about the intersection of class and race, so... In Britain in particular, Pakistani and Bangladeshi and also black adults are more likely to live in substandard accommodation than white people. Um, And over 30% of Pakistani and Bangladeshi people and over a quarter of black people live in overcrowded accommodation. We have less than 10% of the white population in in such substandard accommodations. Um, So yeah, this is kind of a high-level view of how different systems um, can um, intersect. Uh, But now what would be very interesting is to kind of look at real-world consequences of uh, classism.
1: Yeah, so I think one of the most recent and unfortunately best examples in the UK is the destruction of uh, the Grenfell Tower and just to give you a little bit of background for those of you who are not from the UK or may have missed it, although it was hard to miss if you are in the UK, is that um, Grenfell is basically um, a, yeah, a block of flats and accommodation tower in one of Britain's richest boroughs located in West London and it burned down and it killed at least 71 people. And the overwhelming majority was migrants or from a migrant background. And the fire was really the result of like numerous choices uh, by the council, by the leaders in a, in a, I don't want a rigged system, but it is really a rigged system. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, the cost of um, installing and getting sprinklers for the whole building was at around 200,000 pounds at the time, which equates to roughly two hundred fifty thousand US dollars. And it could have reduced the impact of the fire at the tower. But um that money had been readily spent by the council on a court dispute centered around a fight between rich neighbors over piano noise. Yeah. So the basically council chose to spend that
0: money on on people's complaints on pianos and that's I think that's a very, very direct result of classism because I bet like I would bet all my money that if um, the majority of uh, the resident in the building were not uh, migrants and were white people playing piano, um, the neighbors would not have had so much of an issue with that. They would have find a way to sort that out off court uh, and not needing to spend that money. Um, so that's what we mean by how classism um, directly impacts the lives of some people, right?
1: Yeah, and obviously the whole idea behind this is that the council obviously was prejudiced. You know, there, there was um, a lot of errors along the way of people ignoring communities in the, one of the richest boroughs of the UK, in Britain. When you think about it, that is just absolutely mind-blowing. Um, and there has been a lot of campaigning going on since then and obviously we always encourage you to look up this, this specific or many specific examples to find out some more Yeah, the
0: Grenfell story is very, I mean, it's, it's been unsolved um, yeah. and yeah, it's worth like, it's worthwhile to spend some time and read about it because, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, another consequence of classism um, can be found in education. There is some research carried out by Taki et al. that showed that ethnicity, socioeconomic status and gender are the three main characteristics that seem to affect educational experiences and results the most. So socioeconomic status, for example, is the largest driver of differences in performance. For example, in a secondary school, the difference between poor and richer children are three times as great as the difference between children from different African backgrounds who are equally disadvantaged. Gender gaps are also significant and appear within every ethnic group, however the relationship between ethnicity um, other factors such as education um, are not consistent, it's very much depending on the age and the stage mm. of education that is. Um, another consequence is within employment, there is a study published by the Department for Work and Pensions, um, that's in the UK showed that discrimination is evident in recruitment, for example. And I think we've talked about this at some point um, throughout this podcast. Um, Also, research carried out by the Equal Opportunities Commission's Moving On Up investigation had highlighted the key part played by workplace culture in affecting the role and experiences of work for people from different backgrounds. And this work really started to uncover the more nuanced and you know, inadvertent behaviour that contributes to the comp- employment gaps facing you know, Bangladeshi, Pakistani and black Caribbean women in particular. And the Ethnic Minority Advisory Group, which is again within the Department for Work and Pension, has also been examining the role of employers and the potential for policies in the public procurement to affect those kind of behaviours. And um, obviously, we don't stop there, we have some more research that particularly focused on the behavior and practices of employers while acknowledging that is, you know, it's only one part of the picture. Obviously, it's not just always the employer, it's often the group that you um, are acting within. And it identified basically several stages, stages at which ethnicity can be a major and disadvantaging factor. So it's not just recruitment, but it's also promotion, training and retention and obviously we know workplace culture is really important in shaping outcomes around all of these stages
0: yeah i feel like uh, nowadays there are there's a lot of talk about increasing diversity within like different sectors and all of that and a lot of effort put on the recruitment phase but i do believe that the, the other three you mentioned um are often neglected like once you get uh, people within your organization within your company within um whatever system you're trying to diverse diversify are you promoting them at the same rate are you training them accordingly are you worried about retention and and their well-being within your uh, organization that's something that's i, I find yeah very interesting
1: it's, it's also quite important because obviously there is this um term and i don't know if we covered this tokenism uh, in our podcast, uh, we may have done, but, you know, if you only hire people in the recruiting phase for having, you know, a token black person, a token woman, a mm-hmm. to- you know, any kind of token person as a representation in your group, and then you basically let them drop off after you've hired them. Well, honestly that's just another form of performative allyship and that doesn't just exist at an individual level, that can also exist at a corporate level. Mm-hmm. So it's super important to have systems and policies in place beyond the recruitment process that ensure that people are well supported and you know, it's not just for their financial, you know, well being, it's also for people's mental health. Mm-hmm. Um which again we have an episode on. But yeah, um, a final example um, I wanted to point out of, uh, as a direct consequence of uh, classism is uh, migrant workers. So obviously many migrant workers come to the UK with high skill levels and good job qualifications. Uh, there's a lot of research that suggests that they often have to take lower paid jobs. And the key issue here is really um, <laughs> a failure by UK employers to recognize overseas qualifications. So... Mm. You know, recent migrant workers are often hidden in UK statistics and are not always included in discussions about ethnicity and employment. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is, However, there is difference in evidence that migrant workers are particularly vulnerable to low-paid, low-status work. And research also indicates that migrant workers are at the lower end of the labour market and are concentrated in occupations where wages are much lower than average with age, gender and side of work, for example domestic work, are all affecting the level of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also not a story story that's, you know, uncommon even beyond the research, beyond the statistics. So many times we hear about people who come over to the UK, um, you know, qualified as doctors, qualified as lawyers, high-end jobs that take years of dedication and training and knowledge and skill and have to work over here, uh, you know, in in a different profession. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. it's heartbreaking, honestly.
0: Yeah and it's again very often based on not the qualifications because if it was just the qualification then they could like come up with a test that maybe you take after 6 months or so Ooh. to assess your um, if if your degrees that you got from elsewhere is as is well would be valid here but i feel like it's often it often really much depends on where you came from right yeah. um, because someone who um, will immigrate from the U.S. to the U.K. would not have to struggle as much to get their uh, degrees recognized um, over here, as opposed to someone who comes from uh, the Middle East or Asia or Africa.
1: And I think like a, a very good example of this is within nursing. And I only noticed by chance because I looked this up at one point for a friend of mine. If you are from the European Union and you want to work in Britain, for example, over here, you study nursing as a degree in Germany, for example, it's an apprenticeship, so it's mm-hmm. not the same, right? Mm-hmm. But there are measures in place for you as a nurse trained in Germany, for example, to come over to the UK and work as a nurse. So with, it is possible. Yeah, I have to set examples like, you know, tests, qualification transfer, like mm-hmm. all of those kind of things. So, yeah, yeah uh, just random side note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so, yeah, we do realize that was quite a lot of information at once, but Mm -hmm. it's interesting, I think, to me to reflect on those and to see how, by now, after how many episodes have we done um, (laughs) in this podcast? Like 18 maybe? But we clearly start to see a pattern emerging, right? Mm -hmm. When we talk about discriminations or systems of oppression in general, they tend to always affect the same group of people Mm-hmm. Uh, groups of people, and also they seem, it seem it feels like it's systems that are, um, you know, reinforcing those uh, systems of yeah. uh, oppressions, right? So it's like we've talked about, um, yeah, now we're talking about classism and the uh, super rich, and it feels like this gap is uh, increasing, right, with yeah. time, and that's because of the systems of oppression. The same thing with feminism and class and racism, all of these things. We start to see like a a very clear pattern, right?
1: Yeah, there is really. And one of the things that's really important uh, for us, I think, is connecting the dots for everyone. Because I think individually, everybody has heard about these topics, but, you know, not necessarily put two and two together. Yeah. So... We want to switch gears now a little bit because we looked at one side of classism which looked at classism as a system of oppression. But obviously we live in a world where there are a lot of billionaires and um, some of them, not all of them, also um, do or try to do some good in the form of philanthropy. So, Seth, why don't you take us to that definition and everything?
0: <laughs> yeah, philanthropy is very interesting because I think it's very often seen as um, yeah, it's it's got a very positive connotation so it would be interesting to see what we have to say here but uh (laughs) uh, the definition and also a quick disclaimer before um Mm. there are always two sides to an argument right and uh we will be giving examples um in this section um but we don't want to single out specific projects or people because we don't believe this is useful or productive we always try to look at the bigger picture in this podcast and Mm -hmm. at the systems rather than the individuals Mm -hmm. um but given that there are a few billionaires in the grand scheme of things um Mm -hmm. and even fewer who give away large sums and raise awareness we had to pick out um specific examples here um and we chose them by, by their impact um so yeah just A heads up? A heads up, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So what is philanthropy? It's uh, defined as the desire to promote welfare for others, uh, expressed especially by the generous donation of money to good causes.
1: Yeah, and we want to mention, obviously, a couple of good examples as well. So Mackenzie Scott, anybody who knows her, um, probably can't distinguish her from her marriage to Jeff Bezos, but she's one of the philanthropists who has been pledging and giving away millions and billions i believe actually of her money um two causes um and then another example is the indian businessman and entrepreneur jamsechi tata i hope i said his name correctly um who as of 2021 gave away 102 billion and one really interesting fact to note here is that he has given away more money than some of the current billionaires net worth and let's just let that sink in but yeah yeah when
0: you tell me 102 billion i don't even understand what does that mean like Like how many rice grains is that yeah cannot process this number
1: yeah and again the rice grain references has to do with the tiktok just so you guys know i'm not talking about rice randomly (laughs) um Mm But obviously, yeah, philanthropy is a double-edged sword and there are some negative side effects that are not discussed as often. So, for example, in the US, statistics show that um, it's one of the most philanthropic nations, but barely a fifth of the money donated is given away um, to people who are poorer. So a lot of it actually goes to the arts, sport teams and other cultural pursuits, and only half of it goes to education and healthcare. And at first glance, that seems to fit the popular profile of, you know, giving to good causes. But the biggest donation in education in 2019 went to elite universities and schools that the rich themselves attended, right? So when you think about it, the idea here being um, we as, you know, a billionaire nation, which the US really is by size, it's the number one, uh, officially give away money quite a lot to the arts and sports and cultural pursuits, we're not saying that's a bad thing, and then they go on to claim that they do it for education and healthcare, but it's really just alumni of rich universities giving back to rich universities. Mm.
0: Um, So what she's trying to say, I guess, correct me (laughs) if I'm wrong, is just giving money to people who don't necessarily need it.
1: Yes. That's that's what I try to imply here. (laughs) Um, But again, this is not just a US phenomenon, this also happens in the UK, right? So um, over a 10-year period, up until 2017, more than two-thirds of all millionaire donations, uh, a total of 4.79 billion, went to higher education, and half of these went to just two universities, which are Oxford and Cambridge. And obviously, when the rich and the middle classes give to schools, they give more to those attended by their own children than those of the poor, you know, poor children.
0: Again, we're back to a system fitting itself and Mm -hmm. making itself stronger. (laughs) Exactly.
1: And it's it's, it's, it's just kind of at this point, like a repeating, like, you know, we're playing the same song. What's it called in English? A loop. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I, I do I do loops every now and again myself, people, but sometimes it's hard to English. Anyway, Seth, do you want to yeah, talk about
0: the so, non stuff? Yeah, so what's interesting here is that for us, uh, non-rich, we have this common assumption that philanthropy automatically results in a redistribution of money. But I, I start to believe that this assumption might be wrong. Uh, because a lot of elite philanthropy is about elite causes, as mm-hmm. you just mentioned, right? So it's about, you know, just image and uh, reinforcing um, elite um, lifestyles, right? Um, rather than making the world a better place, it larger, largely uh, focuses on reinforcing the, the current status of the wor- world as it is. And it philanthropy, it turns out, very often favors the rich... And no one holds philanthropists to account for it because, you know what, at the end of the day, we have this mentality that it's their money and they get to do what they want with it, right? Mm -hmm. So no need to be held accountable. Um, The role of private philanthropy in international life has increased dramatically in the past two decades. So to give you some numbers, nearly three quarters of the world's um, (laughs) 260,000 philanthropy foundations have been established in that time. And between them, they control more than one point five trillion U.S. dollar. Yeah. Again, a number I can't process with my yeah. The biggest givers are, um, as you said, Annika, in the U.S. Um, and then the U.K. comes second. Mm. Um, the scale of this giving is enormous. Uh, for example, the Gates Foundation alone gave five billion in two thousand eighteen more than the foreign aid budget of the vast majority of countries. Yep. <laughs> Just let that sink in for a second. <laughs> yeah. Philanthropy is always an expression of power. Um, yeah, always. It's always the case. Mm-hmm. Giving often depends on the personal whims of the super rich. Um, and sometimes this, this coincides with the pro- priorities of society. But at other times, they contradict or undermine uh, them.
1: Yeah. So there's not necessarily always an alignment between, you know, public good or social good and the wants and needs of those who have this power. And you know, some of this influence is indirect, and I want to walk you through an example here. So, um, as Seth just mentioned, you know, the Gates Foundation. So Bill and Melinda Gates have obviously brought huge benefits to humankind, in, in some sense, but When the foundation made its first big run for malaria research, it nearly doubled the amount of money spent on the disease worldwide, and it did the same with polio, so all great. And obviously, thanks to the Gates Foundation, some 2.5 billion children have been vaccinated against the disease, and the global cases of polio have been cut by 99.9%. And it means basically it's eradicated. But, you know, philanthropy has made Good, the failures of both the pharmaceutical industry and governments across the world. The Gates Foundation, since it began in two thousand, has given away more than forty-five billion, saved millions of lives. Yet these approaches can be problematic, and you know we don't want to. We don't want to, you know, de- demean or make it sound bad what the Gates Foundation has done. But we want to show here some of the negative side effects of of, of one or. Os- person or one individual or one foundation focusing on on a single problem um so basically because they can become fixed on addressing a problem which is not seen as a priority by local people in an area for example where polio is far from the biggest problem so um the gates foundation did something very similar in the education philanthropy in the u.s where the fixation was on the class size, diverted and it, it diverted public spending away from the actual priorities of the local community. And I think Seth is going to talk a little bit more on that now.
0: Yeah, so it um, ties back to what I was saying earlier about um, holding philanthropists in uh, to account, right? Because here it's like a very clear case of someone who's got a lot of money and just kind of decides uh, what the problem is in uh, part of the globe they have perhaps little knowledge about so it's kind of almost playing god a little bit with your money right mm-hmm. um but the global policy forum which is an independent policy watchdog that monitors the work of the united Nations, um, uh, the united nations general assembly has warned governments and international organizations that before taking money from rich donors they should assess the growing influence of major philanthropic foundations, and especially the Bill and Melinda Melinda Gates Foundation, and analyze the intended and unintended risks um, and side effects of their activities. So I guess it's nice to see, I mean, nice. um, It's good. It's It's a positive. It's good, yeah, to see that there are things now in place to say, like, okay, let's not just take any money from anyone, Mm -hmm. um, but let's uh, first assess... um, the, the risks um, because these philanthropists they don't really have a g- like strong enough incentive um, to assess the risk right they just mm-hmm. have the money and they think that they can throw it at any problem of their choosing and it should generally be good but mm-hmm. the reality is that it it has it carries a uh, risk and you need to be careful about these things mm-hmm. um, another thing is that um, elected elected politicians um, the in the, the UN watchdog warned the elected politicians in 2015 um, that they should particularly be concerned about unpredictable and ins- insufficient financing of public goods um, also of the lack of monitoring and accountability mechanism and the prevailing practice of applying business logic to the provision of public goods So I, I also believe that's a good thing to start thinking about philanthropy and Um, charitable work as uh, yeah like with with rules (laughs) essentially yeah
1: and obviously there are you know no like we know there are ways that a super rich influence democracy so for example our pope um, has used his foundation and his fortune to that he amassed from like basically discount store chains to push for a tightening of the law to prevent fraud in elections even though such fraud is really negligible in the US. A disclaimer for our listeners, it is early in the morning, I am only one coffee in. <laughs> um, so basically, Pope's move, which you know would require voters to show ID at the polls, effectively disenfranchises the 10% of the electorate who lack a photo ID because they are too poor to own a car and are unlikely to go to the expense of getting a driving license or other IDs simply to vote. And you know such voters, many of them are unfortunately black, are, un- are statistically unlikely to vote for the you know conservatives that you know art Pope would favor right? Um, so one thing you have to consider then do such you know philanthropic activities manipulate the dem- democratic process any more than campaigns of billionaires finance billionaire financiers like such as George Soros, who's trying to promote accountable government and social reform around the world. So um, another example, again, you know, Tom Steyer's funding for a movement to encourage more young people to vote on climate change or the attacks by um, internet billionaire um, Greg Niemark on fake news. So we need to be very careful. What I'm trying to say is we need to be very careful when we look at regulating the super-rich because it has to be unbiased as far as it can be because we can't just regulate those who are in favour of um, conservative, Mm -hmm. you know, politicians or laws and policies when, you know, the same thing also happens on the democratic side or the more liberal side as, Mm -hmm. you know, we normally would class it. And in each case, you know, these individuals are motivated to intervene by something arising from their own lived experiences. But, again, um, what by what yardstick can we really suggest that some are more legitimate than others? Mm-hmm. And so, when donors or the super rich hold views that we don't agree with or we detest, we tend to, you know, see them as unfairly tilting policy and debates with their money. You know, um, yet when we kind of like the causes, you know, we often seem to see them as, you know, heroically stepping forward to level the playing field against against you know powerful interests or people who have other you know um you know means of influencing policy dem- democracy etc and so again the 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 bottom line here being that we we need to make sure that it's as unbiased as possible and we the real question we should be asking is whether we think it's okay overall for any philanthropist or super rich person to have so much power to advance their own vision of a better society, mm-hmm. regardless of that advancement come from the left or the right.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a very tough one, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah, with money comes power. And I don't think we have a system in place to control or to regulate this power that comes mm-hmm. with money. Because now in countries like the US, um, not anyone, but people can become very, very rich Mm-hmm. And then there is no monetary, no no regulations, no nothing. You basically yeah. just do what you want. Um, yeah. So it would be it would be very cool if there was a way to kind of link power to money, like a to f- to frame, like mm. uh, come up with a framing that this much amount of money amounts to this much amount of societal power, mm-hmm. and then you can like yeah have a graph, <laughs> <laughs> an equation. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> But um, that brings me brings me to something um, very much uh, related and quite interesting, which is how charity, gift giving, and tax rebate uh, work in Western governments. So, in most Western governments, um, y- you are offered a generous generous tax uh, you're offered generous tax incentives to encourage chari- charitable giving, if if you can, uh, of course. Give uh, back. For example, in England and in Wales in 2019, an individual earning up to uh, £50,000 a year paid 20% of it in tax income, right? But for those earning more, any, anything between um, £50,000 and 150000 was taxed at 40%, and anything above uh, 150000 was taxed at 45%. But then, gifts to registered charities are tax-free. Mm-hmm. So, I guess you can already imagine where this goes, right? Um, but just to, to clarify, um, what that means is that like a gift of £100, pounds, for example, would cost the standard taxpayer only £80, pounds, with 20 being paid by the government, right? Um, but the highest-rate taxpayer would need to pay out only 50, £55 pounds because uh, the state would provide the other 45 pounds. Um, so, <laughs> the super-rich philanthropist, uh, philanthropists, um, therefore, they find themselves in a position where a large percentage of their gift is, is funded by the taxpayer. Okay. I don't know if you follow me with this, but it means that if you're very rich and you want to make um, gifts to to charitable, charitable cause, the government would pay... Um, the difference yeah we would pay the the tax on on this amount um uh, and so it quickly becomes far less clear whether the money philanthropists give away can rightfully be regarded as entirely their own if it's now the government who who pays for like 45 Mm percent um um and if the taxpayers could contribute to part of the gift why should they not have a say in which charity it receives um Mm -hmm. right because it's really very very interesting now because now it means that the richers the richest people in the UK can decide um, where to put um, charitable money in and the government has to match their to pay the, the tax education. and the contributions are of course funded by taxpayers so now you have taxpayers who don't have a say in uh, where the money goes, uh, but still, that's how it is. Yeah, pretty much. Um, In Britain, the total cost of the the state of the various tax breaks to donors in 2012 was estimated by the Treasury at um, £3.6 billion. (laughs) Uh, This enables a philanthropist to escape liability for tax on the donation, um, but yet also to retain control over how the money is spent, within the constraints of charity law. Um, the effect of this is often to give the wealthy control in matters that would otherwise be determined by, st- by the state.
1: Exactly, and um, I think Steph mentioned this earlier, sometimes the personal cho- choices of the rich do not closely match the spending choices of democratically elected governments. And there's some research on this. Uh, so a study from 2013 revealed that the richest 1% of Americans, for example, are considerably more right-wing than the public as a whole on issues of taxation, economic regulation and especially welfare programs for the poor. Many of the richest 0.1% individuals, which are worth more than 40 million dollars, want to cut social security and health care. They are less supportive of minimum wage than the rest of the population and they favor decreased government regulations of big corporations, pharmaceutical companies, blah blah blah, Wall Street and the city, you know, of London obviously as well, for example, obviously. This is a US example, but this also applies to the UK. And the disproportionate influence of the mega wealthy may explain um, why certain public policies appear to deviate from what the majority of citizens want the government to do. Mm -hmm. And the choices made by philanthropists tend to reinforce social inequalities more often than not, rather than reduce them. And so there is this really strong argument that the money donated by philanthropists might be better put to use if it were collected as taxes and spent according to priorities, of a dem- democratically elected government in which case you know should the state be giving tax relief to philanthropists at all that's basically the question we're posing.
0: Yeah and again it's really just a question okay. And again, I have very little knowledge about mm. yeah. <laughs> again how taxes effectively work we understand it's a very complex, complex. system yeah. uh, there's no good one good answer but it does feel like the current system kind of sucks.
1: <laughs> yeah exactly and We just want to say here, we we want to pose these as questions, as, you know, food for thought to those of you who are actually listening to us, rather than reinforcing necessarily a single point of view on this topic.
0: Yeah, and we also really want to say that philanthropy could be compatible with justice, right, like we're not saying it's all bad, of course. Uh, but it does require conscious effort on behalf of the philanthropists who make it so. So, for example, by nurturing the diversity of voices that are essential to hold both the government and the free market to account, uh, philanthropy philanthropy can recover a genuine sense of altruism only by understanding that it cannot do the job of either government or business. So, for it to belong not to a political or commercial commercial realm, Uh, but to a civil society and to the world of social institutions that mediate uh, between individuals, the market, and the states. Um, It is true that philanthropy can weaken elected governments, especially in the developing world, uh, by bypassing national systems or declining to nurture them. Um, But it can can favour causes that only reflect the interests of the wealthy, but where philanthropists support community organisations, uh, Parent-teacher associations, for example, cooperate- cooperatives, um, faith groups, environmentalists, or human rights activists, um, or where they give directly to charities that address inequality and uh, specials in advocacy and disadvantaged groups. Um, so really, grass yes. grassroots organizations, yes. um, they can help empower ordinary people to challenge authoritarian and overweening governments. Um, so on under those circumstances philanthropy can strengthen rather than weaken democracy
1: yes and again i don't want to be a Debbie downer here but um, <laughs> at present that's not the majority of philanthropists right so you know the concerns and disadvantages they tend to focus on they alleviate the symptoms rather than addressing the causes so projects funded to feed the hungry, create jobs, build housing and improve other services. They're all good causes, but all that good work can be wiped out immediately by public spending cuts, predatory lending or exploitative low levels of pay. And there's really the deeper problem when it comes to addressing inequality. You know, a a well-meaning person with a lot of money might finance or fund educational bursaries for children from disadvantaged backgrounds or fund training schemes to equip low-paid workers for better jobs. But, you know, it allows a few people to really exist, exist no exit, you know, it allows a few people to leave bad circumstances, but it leaves countless others stuck in underperforming schools or low paid insecure work at the bottom of the labour market. And very few concerned philanthropists actually think about financing research or advocacy To address why so many schools are poor or so many jobs are exploitative. And that's really where we see the trade off. And um, only a few top philanthropic foundations, such as Ford, Kellogg, and the George Soros Open Society Foundations, are giving grants to groups working to empower the poor and disadvantaged in such areas. So, you know. Most philanthropists actually see them as too political. Um, Many of the new generation of big givers come out of a highly entrepreneurial business world and are disinclined to back groups that challenge how capitalism operates. And they are reluctant to back groups lobbying to promote the empowerment of disadvantaged people whom, you know, the same philanthropists often declared they intend to assist. And they tend to not fund initiatives to change tax and fiscal policies that are tilted in favor of the wealthy or to strengthen regulatory oversight of the financial industry or to change corporate culture to favor greater sharing of the fruits of prosperity that's a really nice thing by the way Mm -hmm. Um, and often unfortunately they rarely think of investing in media legal and academic networks of key opinion formals in order to shift social and corporate culture and readdress the influence of you know conservative philanthropy. And one thing we want to point out here is that we found from, based on our research and all the sources, and obviously you'll see all the sources in our resource section, um, right-wing philanthropy have for more than two decades understood the need to work for social and political change. Mainstream philanthropists now need to kind of you know, wake up to this reality and um, not be as incompatible with democracy, um, but to work to ensure that that is really the case.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so now onto our favorite section, which is uh, on how to make a difference. This one is a little tricky, especially when it comes to the discussion we just had around philanthropy, because I would assume that most of us, um, most of our listeners, are not in a position to give away lots and lots of money uh, for charity or philanthropic purposes. Um, but I would also imagine that we all have maybe um, a little amount of something we can um, give away um, to some um, to, to boost the income, f- income of some charities. And uh, well, for that, I would say what's important is to really look into, do your research into the charity you're giving money to, okay. um, try to prioritize grassroots organizations. Um, and also, yeah, just make sure that they're not doing anything dodgy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that the money you're giving is effectively using, going towards a cause and not like, yeah, it's not anything else. <laughs> um, and just in case, because we never know, in case we do have a super rich person or a billionaire listening to us, please feel free to send your money away. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but. Um, wink. wink. T- t- take our advice on how philanthropy benefits you um, and the po- power that um, you hold. And also, yeah, just again, do your research. Um, try to not use your your money to pay less tax. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: Don't use your money to abuse your power.
0: Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. Um, and when it comes to. Classism and the discussion we had around it uh, being a system of oppression that is uh, reinforcing itself. One way as individuals we can fight against that is to diversify our social networks, right? Because when it comes to job opportunities, they often, very often, come through connections. And by connecting with people within the same, but by connecting with people always within the same social class or race, uh, racial group or ethnic group, you are kind of keeping those opportunities within the same groups, and that's how we cannot break um, these systems. So, by simply by diversifying your social network, you will either start having access to opportunities that you haven't had before, or you would be in a position to give opportunities to people who uh, might not have had um, a chance, the the exposure to these opportunities Mm. in the past.
1: Exactly. Uh, Thank you, Seth. Um, Obviously, normally we do like our personal take as well at the end, but I think we've made our point of view quite clear. Yes, eat the rich. Yes. (laughs) That's my my take. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I think we're not going to make this any longer than it has to be. I'm going to just quickly do some recommendations. you know our watch recommendation for this episode, uh, also mentioned throughout this, um, is a short TikTok that puts into perspective how the world richest, uh, how rich the world's richest man is. Um, we thought it's good to include here. As it's hard to imagine what billions actually look like. We have a lot, a lot of read recommendations this time. Um, one of them by um, Biomedical Odyssey blog. But, on Hopkins Medicine. It's the culture shock my experience of classism in higher education. And then there is a blog by Edinburgh University uh, called let's talk about the hidden curriculum and classism on campus. And finally, there is a uh, report or a summary we would like to point out by the Joseph Round Three Foundation on poverty and ethnicity, a review of evidence. And lastly, we have, you know, a couple of podcasts here. The main one is the LSE podcast, um, which focuses in an episode on can we afford the super rich? I think it's quite interesting. And then the BBC also has um, a really interesting program called uh, on BBC4, actually, called uh, the super rich, the 1% of the 1%. Um, It's a really nice discussion. So check this out, too, if you can.
0: And I just spontaneously want to add another podcast to this, uh, which I listened to only two weeks ago that I found very enlightening. It's on, um, it's a debate on whether we should abolish billionaires, and it's uh, on the Intelligence Squared podcast. Nice.
1: Well, thank you so much for listening today. Um, we hope you enjoyed this more philosophical approach to classism and the super rich. <laughs> well, not really classism, but the super rich. And we look forward to, to chatting again in the next
0: episode. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, this is your problem too.